Hello. Greetings. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for giving us this gift of time together as we continue to explore what God has made known in Christ and in the pages of Scripture. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ, where disciples making disciples in Los Angeles. And we want to be of service to you. We'd love to have uh, any questions or comments you have about the things we're talking about. Please let us know here by uh, commenting where you found us here and subscribing to us. And if we can be of any further service, please reach out to us at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Today we'd like to consider Abraham. Who was Abraham? And why should we share in the faith of Abraham? What kind of guy is Abraham? Anybody who knows much about religion in general, let alone Christianity, understands that Abraham seems to be a pretty important figure. And so what do we know about him? What can we see? Well, what we know about Abraham can be found in the book of Genesis. And the story of Abraham is in Genesis 11:27 through chapter 25 and verse 11. There's a few other little details given about Abraham otherwise in the Hebrew Bible, but uh, pretty much everything else that will be said in the Old and New Testaments about Abraham will be really coming out of this story in Genesis 11 through 25. We believe the book of Genesis, generally believed written by Moses, although the actual author's name is not identified, would have been written between 1450 or 1250, depending on how you look at the Exodus. A lot of scholars want to date the writing of various parts of Genesis to a much later period. But a lot of the witness that Abraham has here, and things that are going on, the stories that Moses or whoever's writing is telling about Abraham, are consistent with the uh, time period in which Abraham would have lived. And therefore, the memory definitely goes back to this time in the Bronze Age. Uh, now, we do not have any contemporaneous, specific, explicit, extra-biblical references to Abraham. So we have no ability to say, here is stuff that shows us Abraham lived back then. But we do have archaeological discoveries in the areas around Haran, in Canaan, that kind of help us understand some of those very culturally contextual aspects of parts of Abraham's story that would not seem to have worked later, but certainly are in play in the way the story is put. Based upon looking at all the dates of everybody, how long they lived, and things of that nature, we believe that Abraham would have lived somewhere around the end of the third millennium before Jesus. So something around 20, 2000 BC, maybe between 2150 and 1975 BC, something like that. This is a very contentious thing. A lot of people would maybe want to date him somewhat later. But uh, what we see in the Genesis narrative makes better sense in this Mesopotamian Canaanite context at the end of the third millennium more than it would uh, than even into the Middle or Late Bronze Age. And this is a very transitional time in the ancient Near East. Uh, this, the Old Kingdom in Egypt and the Akkadian Empire in Mesopotamia kind of represents the, the height of their civilizations. Especially with Egypt, uh, yes, there will be various ways in which later pharaohs would exceed uh, what the pharaohs of the Old Kingdom did. But when it comes to the pyramids and the building and everything else, every, you know, that was the Golden Age. And these things were all many hundreds of years old before Abraham even came around. Of course, Sargon of Akkad and his great empire, you know, kind of bringing this new age uh, of the Semitic people and the Amorite people uh, compared to the Sumerians in the past. But these are all collapsing in the 22nd century BC. And we today believe that this is likely, at least in part, because what we are calling the 4.2 kilo year event. We call it that because it's 4,200 years before the present. And it's a major dry spell in the ancient Near Eastern world. 
Uh, and it's a major transition point. We go from the early to the Middle Bronze Age here. Uh, it looks like from a bunch of inscriptions we have in Egypt, for instance, that the land of Egypt around the Sahara, right around the Nile River, was actually mostly like a savanna, kind of like the savannas we see in, in more central parts of Africa these days. Uh, but that all kind of went away with the end of this 4.2-year, kilo-year event, where the areas of Egypt and Israel and, and maybe Mesopotamia got much drier uh, than they had been before. So the land beforehand might be a lot more fertile, and it's becoming less fertile. And whenever you have that kind of thing going on, a major climatic event like that, you're going to have a lot of famine and drought, which we see some evidence for. You're going to see a lot of instability politically, which we can have evidence for, especially in Egypt. And you will see migrations. People will start moving around. And, of course, that's the big story of who Abraham is and what's what Abraham is about. So in Abraham's world, Abraham is a son of Terah. He's a brother of Nahor and Haran. And they're from Ur of the Chaldeans in Genesis 11, 24 through 28. Uh, Terah, according to Joshua 24 and verse 2, was an idolater. And so as far as we can tell at this time, there's nobody serving the one true God. They're all serving various idols. And this is likely contemporary with the last great independent kingdom of Ur, which was a Sumerian city, the third dynasty of Ur, uh, was ruling at this time after the wake of the collapse of the Akkadian Empire. And this means that Ur would have been one of the most cosmopolitan and prosperous cities of that time. And so why would they leave? Well, Maybe things are starting to get bad because of famines and things. Maybe uh, it might be the call that Abraham receives. We don't, you know, the text is not entirely clear when it comes to why Terah and his family leave. We do know why Abraham leaves because Abraham is called. What's interesting about the text is that whereas we would suggest see that Abraham is called to go from Ur to Haran to to Canaan, according to Genesis 11, 32, was Terah's intention to begin with for his whole family group to go to Canaan, but they only got as far as Haran. Now, Haran is a modern-day Turkey near the Syrian border, at one of the northernmost points of that fertile crescent, you know, the fertile crescent that goes from uh, modern-day Iraq around up around near uh, northeastern Syria and then down into modern-day Israel, uh, so that kind of top part there, that's where Haran is, part of Aram Naharayim, the Aram between the rivers in upper Mesopotamia. And Abraham would then go on to Canaan and Egypt, of course, very famously. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, Canaan would have been considered a cultural backwater right here in the early to Middle Bronze Ages. It's a collection of city-states, mostly oriented toward Mesopotamia and even conquered by them, like we can see in Genesis 14. Uh, Egypt is still staying within its, uh, its borders, not going much beyond the Sinai until uh, a much later time period. Uh, Egypt is undergoing the convulsions of the collapse of the centralized state at the end of the Sixth Dynasty. And it enters the divided period of what we call the First Intermediate Period. Again, they would not have called it that, but that's just what we call it based on what we are seeing. And in the First Intermediate Period, you have kind of a lower and upper Egypt, uh, lower Egypt to the north, upper Egypt to the south. And there would have been a pharaoh ruling from Heracleopolis in lower Egypt. And he would not be ruling over the lands his ancestors would have entirely, but enough for the purposes that we have uh, written in the book of Genesis for Abraham. We're also told about the picture of Sodom and Gomorrah and the lands around the south and east. Uh, we're not going to make much of Sodom and Gomorrah in our conversation because with Abraham it does not make much of that. But uh, we should see there that Lot, when he looks on the land, he sees that the eastern lands are much more well-watered and fertile than the western lands. And again, this goes back to how the it shows that there's a climatological difference between the land that Abraham and Lot are living in and then the lands that the uh, later Israelites would come into uh, when the eastern parts would become much more 
more arid. And that's, of course, consistent with the climate data that we've described. So when we look at who Abraham is in his background, he's living in this transitional time that we would say is between the early and middle Bronze Ages. And it's a time, though, that's very foreign to Moses and the Israelites that comes to the end of the late Bronze Age and into the Iron Age. Uh, and, of course, it would be even more strange to the uh, Israelites living uh, in the late, in the first millennium B.C. It's a time full of idolatry, the golden ages of Egypt and Mesopotamia collapsing, and just before the Amorites would come in and start settling and saturating everything uh, in that phase of Mesopotamian history. So Abraham's life story, again, is told in Genesis 11, 27 through 25 and 11. Yes, he's originally named Abraham and then is changed to Abraham by God in chapter 17. We're just going to call him Abraham throughout for, for purposes of just clarity. And to be very clear, we could easily preach and talk about each episode of Abraham's life as detailed in this section. So we're going to do a major overview, way oversimplified, and we're going to go from there. Abraham's early years are not, we don't know much about. He lives in Ur, he moves to Haran at some point. Um, they're all idolaters, according to Joshua 24 and verse 2. And he had married his half-sister Sarah, but they had no children. At 75 years old, God speaks with Abraham, promises him that he would make him a new great nation. He would bless those who bless him, curse those who curse him, and be a blessing for all the families of the earth if he would go out from his country and family and go to the land that he would show Abraham. So this is Abraham's first great call of faith, that he's hearing from this God that he has not known. Just hearing, we don't know a voice, we don't know how it came to him. Hearing this thing and saying that he was he should go out and leave every form of connection and security to go somewhere else. And so he does that. That's the beginning of this story. And he goes to this land, and almost immediately after he gets to this land, they end up in this famine. And so they then go down to Egypt, and we have this story in Genesis 12 where uh, there's this half-truth, half-lie, that Sarah is his sister because they share one parent. And uh, so they said that Pharaoh then takes Sarah's wife, and then there's all this kind of disasters in Egypt, and the reason is discovered, and uh, Abraham is, re is, is, is given his wife back and is given things and is told politely to leave. And so they come back to the land of Israel, Canaan at this time, uh, and Abraham will live in the West's land, uh, the land west of the Jordan. Uh, his nephew Lot, who would come with him, would end up taking land east of the Jordan. But it's very important to notice that none of them own any of the land. They're just inhabiting it. And God would then promise that the land that Abraham was inhabiting west of the Jordan would be given to his descendants forever. Now here's the thing about that. When God speaks to him again in chapter 15, at some point between Abraham is between 75 and 85, he promises him this kind of stuff and promises him an abundance. Now, the thing about this is that Abraham is old, and he doesn't have any children. And Sarah, his wife, is old, and he, he has no children. And so Abraham wonders how this is going to happen. Right now, Eliezer of Damascus is his heir. And Yahweh tells him, look, uh, you're going to have a son from your own body. And in chapter 15 and verse 6, it says, Abraham believed him, and it was reckoned or credited him as righteousness. And it's going to be very important we're going to talk about this again. Now, there's this custom of the time that Sarah follows where in Mesopotamian society, if you were barren, you could give a slave or to your husband to have proxy children, that the children that the slave would bear would become your children. And so that's what she does with the Israelite slave, sorry, the Egyptian slave, Hagar. And so the Egyptian slave, Hagar, is given to Abraham, and she conceives and gives birth to Ishmael. And this happens when Abraham is 86 years old in chapter 16. 
The next great event we see in chapter 17 is that Yahweh appears to Abraham at 99 years old. So Ishmael now is about 13 years old. And Yahweh affirms the covenant. This is when he's renamed Abraham from Abraham because he's going to be a father of many nations. He's going to be fruitful. He's going to have this covenant that God has made with him perpetually. The land of Canaan will be given to his descendants. And at this point is when he, this is when he's given the sign of, of of circumcision as a sign of the covenant that all the male descendants should be circumcised. His wife Sarai is renamed to Sarah, and her fruitfulness is promised. Abraham said, "Why can't Ishmael live before you?" But but God says, "No, you will have a child through Sarah, and that will be your chosen heir." Even though she was ninety almost, and he was almost a hundred. And Yahweh reinforces his promise. And of course, Abraham circumcised himself at 99 years old, has son Ishmael circumcised at 13 years old. All the men of his household are circumcised because of this covenant promise. Soon after, Yahweh and two angels will appear as men before Abraham, and it promised Abraham would have a son around that next year. And Sarah hears this and laughs, and you know, there's a whole talk conversation about that. Uh, Yahweh will tell Abraham his plans about Sodom, what he's going to do. And what's interesting about there in chapter 18, you can definitely see the depth of relationship God, Abraham has with God, because Abraham will start haggling with God and say, well, what if there's a hundred righteous people there? You're going to destroy the whole city for a hundred righteous person? No, I'll, I won't. Then 50, 90, he gets down to 10. If there's 10 righteous people there, God is not going to destroy Sodom. So uh, how many of us would perhaps feel confident haggling with God about such things? Of course, in the narrative, there's clearly not even 10 because God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, and that whole thing happens. Uh, in chapter 19, chapter 20, we get back to Abraham himself. He's in Gerar, in the Negev, in south areas between, uh, you know, just northeast of, of Egypt. Uh, and in, there's uh, another episode like what happened in Egypt, where he's in a land, and then he uh, says his wife is his sister, so Abimelech the king takes, uh, or was going to take Sarah's wife, and then it's made known to him what's going on, and, and their whole conversation, and Sarah's given back to him. Uh, and then, soon after that, Sarah bears Abraham a son, Isaac. Uh, he laughs because of the fact Abraham and Sarah both laughed about this, because Isaac is born when Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90. And then we have the what's called the Akedah from the Hebrew of going up in Genesis 22, 1 through 18, where Yahweh summons Abraham at some point after this, uh, between uh, then and when Abraham's wife dies, uh, that uh, Isaac should be offered as a burnt offering. And Abraham is willing to do that, has a son tied up on the altar and everything, when you know the angel stops him from doing that and declare that Yahweh had seen that Abraham would not withhold anything from him and reinforce that covenant promise and this declaration that through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed in Genesis 22, 1 through 18. So uh, at, when Abraham is 137, his wife Sarah dies when she's 127. And so Isaac is at this time around 37 years old. And uh, this is when he makes provision. In chapter 23, he buys the cave of Machpelah from the, the Hittites around him. Uh, and this is the only piece of property Abraham will ever own in Canaan. Uh, and it's the place that he buries his wife and where he will be buried himself. Soon after this, three years later, within three years, Abraham makes provision that Isaac would be married to a family member from Padan Aram, not from among the local Canaanites. And that's the whole story in chapter 24. That's, of course, how Isaac will uh, marry Rebekah. And then we're told in 20, chapter 25 that Abraham would have other children through Keturah, uh, which we assume is the wife he took after Sarah died. Uh, those children, and Ishmael's children, were given many gifts during Abraham's life, and they would become many of the Arabian tribes 
to the south and southeast of uh, the land of, of Canaan and Israel. And we're told in Genesis 25, 1 through 10, that Abraham dies at the age of 175, that he gave all of his inheritance to Isaac, and that Isaac and Ishmael buried him at the cave of Machpelah. So that's the story of Abraham. That's what we learn about Abraham. So what do we see here about Abraham? What, what do we see about him and what are we supposed to take away from it for our faith? Abraham, of course, will become the legendary ancestor of the faithful. And again, we use that word legendary. We're not saying he didn't exist. It's just that he's taken on this legendary character. He is the father of faith. Um, just like George Washington, we can say, is kind of the honest leader, right? Things like that. You have a legendary person. In Exodus 3 and verse 6, when Yahweh reveals himself to Moses, he says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because that is the way God identifies himself from the people he worked with and the promises that he made. And Israel would take great confidence in those promises. Very great confidence in those promises. In John 8 and verse 32, Jesus has a line that we find famous today. We, we believe it's so powerful that you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. But at the time, in verse 33, the Jewish people are very uh, insulted by this because, well, we've never been slaves of anyone. We are children of Abraham. And so we can see the very importance there of being a, a descendant of Abraham from them. Uh, they took it in a very misguided direction, but it's not that they were entirely wrong. Because you see in Romans 4 and verse 16 that Paul didn't consider God's promise to Abraham as voided in Christ, but in fact fulfilled. And throughout, Paul is very insistent to saying it's not that we are no longer connected at all to Abraham. It's in fact that we, because we share in the faith of Abraham, we are now children of Abraham by faith, that he is the father of us all. That if we think that we can somehow stand before God independent of the promises he made to Abraham, we're going to find ourselves in a very bad place. That in fact, we stand before God precisely because God has proven faithful to the promises that he made to and through Abraham. In fact, Muhammad, in the 7th century of our era, would attempt to recenter the promises to Abraham around Ishmael. So that's why Islam also considers Abraham to be the ancestor of faith. And so the, this is why the three you know, monotheistic religions of Judaism, Christianity, and, and Islam all you know, come, go back to who Abraham is. And we recognize that, and we should confess that, because he's the one who heard the voice of God. And he recognized it is God's voice, and to obey God. His ancestors had been idolaters, so you can't go any further back than Abraham. Abraham is the progenitor of faith in God, the God, God of heaven, Yahweh, whatever you want to call him, God of Israel. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before he's the God of Israel, before he's the God who gives promises to David, before he is the father of Jesus Christ. In the way that we understand it, of course, he's always been the father since the beginning, but he is the God of Abraham in all of this revelation long before that. Because Abraham heard and obeyed, everything else could take place. God's plan for redeeming people and blessing people could move forward despite all that was lost in the fall and the flood and at the Tower of Babel. It's really with Abraham that God's plan of redemption gets going. Now, we, we can again make... Abraham, the avatar of faith, to the point of neglecting the fact that he had great faith. You know, so many times we talk about the faith of Abraham in terms of looking at how we're connected to Abraham, then we miss the faith of Abraham himself, that he is, in fact, uh, the embodiment of faith. In Romans 4, Paul really goes through and shows that 
Abraham is the father of the faith because his faith and trust were in God. And in his argument there, he very intentionally deliberately goes back to that episode in Genesis 15 that we mentioned earlier, where it was Abraham's faith was reckoned or, or made, considered him as righteousness. Uh, there's a whole lot that goes in there about imputation, and that's because of Latin translation and all kinds of, of misdirections in theology in the medieval and, and early modern times. Uh, but we shouldn't miss the basic point that at 86 years old, uh, or you know, if it's a little bit earlier, whenever this happens here at this moment, uh, Abraham has no earthly reason to believe that he's going to have many descendants. Uh, his wife is 75. What, how are they going to have kids? Uh, and it's even a cruel joke, it seems, by that point. But despite it all, Abraham trusted in God. God had brought him to that point. I mean, you could think it was crazy for Abraham to hear this random voice in a very nice place and who's telling him to go somewhere else and leave everything that you've known. Uh, and all these things, uh, and, and Kierkegaard very, very distinctly in Fear and Trembling looks at how if we weren't so impressed by Abraham's faith, we'd see him as a lunatic. Uh, because the kind of things he's willing to do in the name of faith uh, especially with, with Kierkegaard looking at being willing to sacrifice his own son as a burnt offering, uh, you would definitely want to question that person's sanity if, if somebody today said they were going to go do that. But yet we look at him as this exemplar of faith because he did have this deep abiding trust in God that God had seen him through, God had done everything God had promised. And so Abraham trusts in God despite it all, and that's why it was reckoned as righteousness. And the reason Paul wants to focus on Genesis 15 is because the covenant of circumcision was not given until chapter 17. It was not given for another 13 years. So his faith and the reckoning of faith and as righteousness was not dependent on circumcision, and it was not dependent on the Torah that was going to follow it. And so that means it's not exclusive to those who are of the circumcision and of the Torah, because it was given to Abraham before any of that existed. Now, Paul also has allegorical purposes in mind, but he focuses on Abraham's faith in God that he would have a child even though Sarah's womb was as good as dead because God is the God of resurrection, right? That uh, God brought life where there should not have been any or where there was none. And as that happens with Isaac as the chosen child, so it would be when Jesus and his death and resurrection. The Hebrews author will kind of play with that as well, but also will look more at the situation of the Akedah and saying that it's the, you know, that he received his son back as kind of a resurrection uh, there as well. And again, we could talk a lot about that Akedah, the, the offering of Isaac in Genesis 22, but we can see there that Abraham clearly has a lot of confidence in God. So while Abraham is the father of the faith, he's also the, he's the father of the faith because he displayed that kind of faith. And that's why Paul's point ultimately is, if you want to share in Abraham's blessings, you have to share in the faith of Abraham. And that is true of the Israelite and the Gentile. That if we want to have the blessings of God, if we want to follow after God and obtain life in God, we are going to have to have the same kind of trust in God that Abraham did and to be willing to do the kind of things Abraham did. Now, not for your son, not, no, that's not necessarily the case, but to go where God calls you and do what God calls you to do. And that's what we also see about Abraham. And the Hebrews author does a lot with this in Hebrews 11, 8 through 16, that Abraham is the sojourner. After his, he lives Haran, his life is entirely by faith because he trusts in God to go to Canaan and the only place he ever owns is his gravesite. And it's a major uh, theme and undercurrent of Abraham's story because God has called Abraham to live the civilized, stable comfort of the day, to live as a wandering nomad, rootless, without a firm place in a much less developed area. 
And the Hebrews author highlights this because the children of Abraham by faith must also live as sojourners even if they never leave their home. So where Abraham, you think about what does it mean to be a sojourner? Well, he's living in tents. He's got all of this wealth. But his wealth is consuming land he does not own. It's land that is, if anybody's considered it owned, it's the people around him. He's, he's living by the grace, the good graces of the people around him. Uh, this will also be true of Isaac and Jacob. But we see how this plays in the story of Abraham, especially the kind of elaborate customs he goes through in order to obtain a cave to bury his wife. And he is highly regarded by the people around whom he sojourns. Uh, so he has a good relationship with people around him, generally. And that works to his advantage and allows him to stay there. But there's always going to be that possibility that something could arise that would disrupt that. And so he can't ever find any confidence on any of the ground he's standing on. Because his, his, his confidence has to be in God. And so there's an ambivalence there. We can also see that even though he gets along well the Canaanites around him, he doesn't think too highly of them. Because when it comes time to marry off his son, it's time to call back home. And Isaac eventually is marrying what his cousin uh, to some extent or another. Uh, so we're keeping it in the family here. And his, Isaac's son will be encouraged to keep it in the family as well. Uh, which again shows that ambivalence about the Canaanites, the people around them in this land. Uh, and this is important because I mean, what would happen if Abraham had married Isaac off to a Canaanite? I mean, right there, 50% of the uh, descent, you know, ancestry of the people of God from there on out would have been Canaanite. Uh, so they would become they would become as Canaanites. This is how Abraham, even though he is dwelling in this land, maintains his distinctiveness and to maintain this kind of ambivalence with the area around him. And the Hebrews author is saying that absolutely. Uh, this is part of what we need to be doing. Now, we may have property that we own or that we feel more confident in the land in which we live, and yet we're supposed to have this ambivalence where we are to trust in God and be willing to go where God calls us to go. Um, we might be looking for home, but like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're not going to find our home here. We need to be looking to uh, God's dwelling, to God's purposes, the resurrection, and his son's kingdom as true home, the heavenly city that he has prepared for us. Now, in all this, we've talked well and warmly about Abraham, and for good reason. He's the father of the faith, and he was faithful. And we need to keep that as the emphasis, because that's the emphasis in Scripture. But he's not divine. And the Genesis author has actually gone out of his way to recount this persistent transgression of Abraham. We mentioned it with Genesis 12, and also in Genesis 20, that Abraham has told his wife to keep up the subterfuge, that she is his sister. And this causes a lot of difficulty for Egypt and Gerar. Now, why does he do that? In Genesis 20, verse 11, when Abimelech challenges him about it, Abraham says, I did this because I said there's no fear of God in this land. And if they, they see how beautiful my wife is, they're going to kill me and try to take her for wife. And because of this, there's this great difficulty here. And what's interesting about both of these stories is that Pharaoh and Abimelech are made to seem comparatively more righteous than Abraham in this situation. That yeah, Abraham here is called a prophet by God, and he is a prophet of God. God has spoken to him, and God speaks through him, and can provide blessings. But uh, here, Pharaoh and Abimelech are comparatively more righteous, because they're acting in good faith, and Abraham has not been acting in as good faith. So why does, in a real way, Abraham is lacking in faith in God? 
here. This is a lack of faith in God. Uh, because didn't God promise Abraham, especially uh, with the, let's look at the Gerar incident especially. Um, because by that point, it is between when God has appeared to him and said, you are going to have a son through Sarah. He has promised that in chapter uh, 17. In chapter 18, he says, this time next year, it's going to happen. Uh, so uh, he knows it's going to happen. It's going to happen soon. How could God have promised that if he goes and is around the people of Gerar and Abimelech has his men kill Abraham and take Sarah's wife? Clearly, you know, there's a lack of faith there. Uh, but the real issue here is not his lack of faith. If you talk to Abraham about it, he would still say, I trust in God. It's the people around me I don't trust. And that's the issue. His extreme cynicism and jaundiced view of the people around among whom he sojourns. Uh, again, there is absolutely transgression in the land. Um, but could he really go as far as to say there was no fear of God in it? And so Abraham has this very low estimation of the people around him. And because of that, in the end, they kind of re rebuke that attitude in him because now they look comparatively more righteous than he does because they may be idolaters. They may be transgressing in many ways. Uh, but uh, Abraham has not done well with them that he should have been more faithful to those around him because of his great confidence in God. And so Abraham's example here is a warning for God's people that are we to be sojourners and that we're not to be like the Canaanites in the land of the Canaanites, right? That's absolutely what we've seen. But if we presume that there is no fear of God in the land, and we no longer ourselves are acting in trustworthy ways. We might find ourselves to be humiliated and to have those whom we have deemed to be pagan and godless to be comparatively more righteous than we are in how we have dealt with them. And so it's something that we need to keep in mind, and that, that was Abraham's challenge, and it's a challenge that we have to this day, because again, this is a balancing issue, where we need to realize that the people around us may well be transgressors, and we cannot just do everything they do, uh, but that doesn't mean that we act as if they are completely beyond the pale. Uh, otherwise, we see that there are people who may end up acting more faithfully than we do. So we've seen Abraham, who is the father of the faith and the exemplar of faith throughout all generations. He's the sojourner who reminds us that we should never get too comfortable in our environment, but we should also not go to the point of having no confidence in those around us. And therefore, may we all share in that faith of Abraham, that we might be Abraham's children by faith, and to inherit the promised life in Abraham through his seed, Jesus. Let us pray. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful for all that you've done for us and all that you've given us, for your love and care for us, for the creation you've made for us, for all the promises and hope that you've given us in Jesus and the redemption and resurrection we have in him, for the spirit that you strengthen us. We pray for strength and wisdom in your spirit. And for the word by which we come to know you and be able to know the stories of all the people who come before us and, and to, to learn from their example. We're mindful of all those who are ill. We pray that you would heal them. We pray that you would preserve life where it is in danger. We pray that you would strengthen, sustain, and comfort those in distress and pain. That your justice and righteousness would flow in our land and throughout the world. And that you, uh, powers and principalities may seek to advance your purposes. And that anything that they would do against you would be thwarted. We're thankful for the great example of Abraham, Father. We pray that we would be children of Abraham by faith, that we would manifest the same faith in you that Abraham had, and that you would give us the wisdom and understanding to know how we are to live as sojourners in our time, uh, yet not to presume that there is no fear of you in this land and to 
uh, be able to manifest to those that we deal with our trustworthiness because our confidence is in you. And we look forward earnestly to the resurrection of life that we'll share in your son through all these promises you have made. And we know that you are faithful and we entrust ourselves to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, very glad you've joined us. We hope that you've been benefited by our conversation here by Abraham. Love to know what you think. Uh, let us know. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us if we can be of any service at VenetriaChrist.org. And may the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.